Hello and welcome to episode 65 of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. And this is a very, very Star Wars heavy episode. We are going to be talking all of the Star Wars celebration rundown. We are going to be talking the Obi-Wan first two episodes. We are going to be talking Strange New Worlds. Just kidding, that's Star Trek. Um, imagine if I just let that go and just saw if anybody corrected me. But we will in fact be talking Strange New Worlds. Also be sure to check out the podcast Patreon under Sensational She Geek, where today on the after show I will be discussing the complete story of one of Star Trek's most popular episodes is what the preface title is, The Trouble with the Tribbles by David Gerald, or possibly Gerald. Um, it is a book from, I want to say the 70s, from the 70s, um, that talks about the making of the script of The Trouble with Tribbles, the whole episodic planning of it. Uh, all through filming it and this uh, writer's experience. He was a college student, I guess, at the time, and his experience in writing a Star Trek episode, uh, basically without any experience beforehand in the industry. Um, and so I will be talking a little bit about that. It's a cool little thing, um, very old, a little bit beat up, but it's a nice little uh, specimen, so to say, collectible item uh, that I will be t discussing in the podcast after show today which again, you can find on the podcast Patreon. Other things that we will be talking about on this episode, um, with the news, we have uh, obviously a ton, a ton of content from Star Wars Celebration to go over. Um, I have found as much as I could um, different things that were announced and given information on. Um, the thing that I have the least information on would be the games, of which there was one, two, three. So if you're looking for the game stuff, I don't have too much on that, but I got as much as I could about everything else. Um, we have some other slight news things about comics and uh, coming soon developments, and very little for the comic book books. I have to say, I um, have not actually gotten around to reading this week's comics, so we're just going to, uh, go over quickly what came out this past week, uh, and then go over what's coming out this week for the comic book polls, since we're actually getting this out on time. There's not a whole lot coming out this week, um, that I will be taking note of, uh, but what there are, uh, quite a few, the things that are coming are quite notable. Obviously, Obi-Wan Kenobi episodes one and two are being discussed on this episode. I have a lot to cover on that. I absolutely loved it. Um, if you're looking for somebody hating on it, you are looking in the wrong place. We also have Young Justice episode 24 of season four, which I was mistaken is not the finale. The finale will be episode 26. We also have Strange New Worlds, episode four. Memento Mori was the title, which we will be going over. Um, and then some just fun discussion about the show in general. And we'll be wrapping up the today's episode with the DC Comics of August 2022 solicitations. Um, again, I have it broken up into a couple of different sections, which I will, um, hopefully that will just make things a little bit easier for people who are trying to um, get to know how these things come out on a monthly basis, maybe make it easier for you to keep track of things. 
If you'd like to get in touch, you can find an invite link to the Yancey Street Discord at the bottom of each episode. If you are listening to an older episode, just go to the most recent one and that will have the most recent invite link there. Um, that is a place for a discussion of really whatever you want, but obviously um, for like-minded, sort of geek-minded folks in general. Um, if you'd like to find me specifically, you can find me on social media, Instagram, uh, Anna with the comics is my username there, and my podcast is uh, my podcast. My Twitter, jeez, is a uh, Savage She Geek. I also have a website, sensationalshegeek.weebly.com, which I have been fixing up to be a lot more relevant in addition to the podcast, as opposed to just kind of the side thing that I put the podcast notes on every week. Um, And that includes, I added a beginner's guide to both comics and manga, which I hope covers any information that you might need to take your first steps as they may be into the world of comics and manga and or manga, um, which does include my recommendations across comic books, graphic novels, um, various publishers and manga. I have uh, reading orders of various famous leading ladies with Clea, Madeline Pryor, and Magic, Eliana Rasputin, as three really relevant characters, specifically at Marvel at the moment. Um, If you're looking for anything pre-2021, specifically February 2021, that I might have written about, that will be found on the blog, which was there long before I started the podcast. Um, so anything like that, I have I have reviews, I have discussions, I have character breakdowns, stuff like that. Um, all picklist, polist, you know, all of that pre-2021 is strictly on the blog. Uh, what I post mostly on the blog now is uh, podcast pod notes, which are the notes that I take uh, for going through the podcast each week. Um, and I post that there for you to read instead of listening for the podcast and for those who are hearing impaired so they can keep up with the events of the weeks as well. Finally, you can find links to anywhere that you can listen to the podcast, which is most podcast hosting apps out there. Um, and also YouTube where I post the podcast episodes, um, in one playlist for if that's easier for anyone in particular to listen to that way. I also upload action figure review videos on YouTube. I've been pretty bummed out on Marvel Legends of late, so it's been a lot of imported figures um, and things like that, lots of SH figure arts and whatnot, Um, but I do have a pretty decent backlog of Marvel Legends review videos and also a 40-minute walkthrough of our entire toy collection, which does include a ton of Marvel Legends figures. My most recent videos, though, are of, um, I have one, well, actually, it's my most recent video so far, uh, of the Kefla from Dragon Ball Super, um, and then I am supposed to be getting up, I know I mentioned it on the last week's episode, I will be getting up the, finally, hopefully, the Sailor Chibi Moon um, video. I had a little bit of technical difficulties. My phone has been doing this thing where it'll delete a video and then make it reappear like a week later. (laughs) Um, and so it reappeared, the video that I recorded for that a few days ago, and so I will finally be able to hopefully upload it, finish it and upload it, um, along with the Kefla video, which is already up there, and you can watch that on my YouTube channel, which is, of course, Sensational She Geek.
I do have the podcast Patreon, as I mentioned. Uh, it is under Sensational She Geek, of course, set up for donations to support the podcast. Um, I'm trying to do the 20 to 30 minute podcast after shows posted exclusively to the Patreon page. I've only done a few so far, though, so they have been made available for public viewing um, several days after the initial post. This Star Trek one I will make available um, in, I believe on Friday is what the plan is, uh, but that will be the last preview that will be made available to non-Patreon uh, subscribers. And after that, those will just be the example ones, and uh, or possibly I'll just have a few good ones that I pick out to be used for the example ones. Um, and uh, the rest will be exclusive to patrons. So if you would like to be involved in that, then you uh, will have to subscribe on Patreon after this episode. There's also links for Ko-fi, which is like a buy a creator a coffee kind of situation, uh, Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, etc. All linked on my link tree for donations towards the podcast because I do still work a regular job, and the more uh, that I don't have to do that, the more work I can put into the podcast and my site. And links for all of that should appear at the bottom of each episode's description. Finally, I do have a Redbubble shop. I'm having some issues with it. Um, it does have some fun merch things on it right now, but I am um, struggling with Redbubble a little bit, allowing me to put some stuff up. Uh, so I will likely be making that my own kind of sticker sales thing. So keep that in mind for the future. Before we really get into the news, my uh, only news and announcements I have are just a couple of points. First of all, um, I will be doing, I've done a few voiceovers for some uh, stop motion action figure projects on YouTube. Um, I will be doing one coming up for Scarlet in a G.I. Joe video, uh, which I know nothing really about yet besides that information there. Uh, but I will be posting it on my website and on the, uh, we'll talk about it on the podcast when it is available. The other announcement being Ms. Marvel comes out in nine days. So watch out for that coming on the, does some math really quick in my head? Not really, I'm looking at the calendar. Eighth. <laughs> now let's talk Star Wars Celebration. I've broken this down into a couple of different categories. Well, it's really, um, we're, we're starting with just a couple of general things and then I've broken it down into uh, what is basically TV news. Um, which is going to cover, let's see, Obi-Wan Kenobi, The Mandalorian, The Bad Batch, Star Wars Visions, Ahsoka, Andor, Star Wars The Skeleton Crew, The Acolyte, uh, Tales of the Jedi, and let's see, Lego Summer, Star Wars Vacation, and Young Jedi Adventures. Then we have Indiana Jones 5, extremely briefly, Willow, our games are Star Wars Jedi Survivor. Uh, Knights of the Old Republic 2, The Sith Lords, Star Wars Hunter, and Star Wars The High Republic. We are going to wrap up the Star Wars celebration with three comics. It is The High Republic, The Blade, and Yoda. So starting up at the top of that list, and if you couldn't tell, that was mostly, you know, you go TV and then... Uh, other stuff and then you get games and comics. I have I had a pattern to this. I have there is some sense to the madness. I don't know. Um, but starting off with just the general announcements and things that we learned. Um, one thing I, I noticed going through all the 
news is that the internet, I'm, I'm sure possibly Disney has it all encompassed, but uh, the internet seems to lack like an all encompassing rundown of all of this news of just the entire thing, day one to day, what, four or five. Um, so I did my best piecing bits together because most articles seem to kind of go day by day or kind of pick and choose what they were talking about. So um, I did my best piecing it all together. I apologize if I missed something that you were looking forward to hearing about. Uh, it did take place this year in Anaheim, but it will be taking place in 2023 in London, which I believe I read was the first time since 2016 that it has been there. Um, there had, were a couple of things that were not really spoken about, specifically the future, well, the movies that are the future of Star Wars. Um, however, Kathleen Kennedy, after the showcase, did speak with a few outlets, confirming that... Um, Taika Waititi's project, which he has a movie coming up, um, it has progressed forward ahead of Patty Jenkins' project, which you might remember is Rogue Squadron, uh, meaning it will be the next Star Wars film being released, supposedly, next year. Um, and that's pretty much the general stuff. Obi-Wan Kenobi, we know, has already premiered, and we will be discussing that in a separate section on this episode, but since they were there, the cast and everything, and they discussed the show and whatnot, obviously I'm talking about it now, too. Um, we did see that Hayden Christensen spoke to IGN and revealed that director Chow had a, quote, Vader movement specialist on set for us to make sure that we stay true to the Vader we know and love. And so the future of that show, we will be seeing him, we know. Um, and, you know, fingers crossed it is as good as they're making it sound. Um, it was and delightful to see the videos and images of Ashley Eckstein, the voice of Ahsoka Tano from The Clone Wars, finally meeting Hayden Christensen and Ewan McGregor and having a really, really cute time throwing lines kind of back and forth just a bit uh, from The Clone Wars show, like calling him Sky Guy and stuff. Absolutely adorable. And the crowd went totally nuts. They were super into it. Gotta love it. Um, because Ashley Eckstein, she had a lot to do with the creation of the characterization and the characterization of Ahsoka. And she has been a major backer of the Clone Wars and its characters and its history and everything from the start. Not having her as the live-action Ahsoka in the Ahsoka show is a little bit bittersweet, uh, but knowing that, all of that. Uh, but she is still super involved with the community through her fashion line that she created. It's her universe. If you've ever heard of that fashion line, her universe, that is Ashley Eckstein's baby. Um, she has so many other Star Wars related projects. Plus her husband is an ex MLB player. So between the two of them, they probably have a busy enough schedule of appearances as it is. But in any case, it was just so nice to see them recognize her in this way and have her lead the discussion of Obi and Anakin's live action versions. Super cute. 10 out of 10. I will, well, I do have a link in the description below if you want to watch that interview. Season 3 of The Mandalorian will be premiering in February of 2023, so we have little under a year to wait for that. It will be, of course, reintroducing us to the characters we met in the first seasons, like Emily Swallow's The Armorer, Carl Weathers' Grief Karga, Paul Sun-Hyung's Lee... Paul Seung-Hyung Lee's Captain Carson Teva. Again, I am so bad at pronunciations of names. Um, I apologize for slaughtering some of them and making a fool of myself. Uh, also, we'll be seeing more of Amy Sedaris's Peely Moto and some other fan favorites with a big focus on Katie Sackhoff's 
Bo-Katan Kreese. There is a trailer that they showed to the audience. It has not been publicized. There are versions out there, bits and pieces, to whatever extent you seem to possibly want, um, on places on the internet if you would like to find them, which I'm not going to link here because I don't want to get in trouble. I'm not stupid. Um, not that stupid. Uh, but in the trailer, as I may or may not have seen that, um, I didn't go. We will be going to Mandalore. Finally, uh, we first saw Mandalore visually in the Clone Wars and also Rebels, if I'm not completely mistaken. Uh, it is obviously the home of the Mandalorians, of course, formerly under the rule of Satine Kreese. Rule is kind of a loose term. I use that term loosely, but under the guard of Satine Kreese, we'll go with that, uh, who is the rumored lover of Obi-Wan and sister, factual not rumored, of Bo-Katan. Katie Sarkoff's Bo-Katan, in case you need that piece together. We have seen a lot of the complicated lore and culture of Mandalore in The Mandalorian Show and across various other shows, really, uh, but mostly from a perspective of what you would call religious extremists at least in The Mandalorian. Um, and those extremists, you know, are characters such as the armor and, of course, Din Djarin himself, the Mando, Mando, as we may call him. It was more or less confirmed through episodes of Book of Boba Fett, of all places, that they come from a group uh, who we saw more or less founded, I guess, in the Clone Wars series, the Death Watch. They got involved with Maul after being bisected. It got involved with the dark saber things were generally complicated but basically they rebelled ended up going off as the quote one true mandalorians and mandalore itself attempted to modernize its beliefs and lifestyles now it's a bit of a tragedy of a place um so that's where bo-katan comes from while din and the armor come from the offshoot that was once death watch so we have been led to believe so far it's what we pieced together and this all, of course, will definitely complicate things, especially with Din having the dark saber, technically marking his right to lead the planet of Mandalore, so and all of the Mandalorian people. So shit's a bit complicated, and I am digging it because I love space drama. <laughs> Star Wars drama, I'm into it. Um, also from Collider, they say, speaking with Collider during Star Wars Celebration, John Favreau noted, quote, we all know where, where everything's going to end, because of the time period ends. Because of when the time period ends. I butchered that just by reading it. Um, he's basically just referencing, um, we are allowed to assume, referencing the rise of the First Order. Um, which, I guess, is kind of where the show is going to wrap up. The next couple of points we won't be hitting on quite as much. Uh, the first being Bad Batch Season 2, which will be premiering on Disney Plus this fall. 2002, I need to say 2002, 2022. Uh, the trailer is online. I do have it linked in the description. It shows them all linking up with their, I couldn't remember her name, the smuggler boss lady. Um, we're going to see them witness the rise of Emperor Palpatine, Sith Lord, uh, the batch fighting for others in need of help, likely referencing the outfall of Order 66 the outfall, the fallout of Order 66. Uh, we'll be seeing new characters, familiar characters, a Jedi Wookiee kid, which is always fun, uh, Echo taking tons of initiative, which looks like growth to me, uh, lots of action, and, you know, just the fun hijinks of the batch, of course. 
The update we have for Star Wars Visions is not really anything except that Volume 2, as they're going to be calling it, will be coming in spring of 2023, so up to one year from now. There are no real details on the new episodes as of yet, but it was, I believe, rumored, I want to say, some time ago that they will be picking up on this past anthology series, the stories that we've already seen in the first series, um, and continuing them in this second collection, supposedly. So if you had some favorite characters who popped up in that anthology animated series, you might see them again. Who knows? We'll see. Some fun updates for the Ahsoka show, which they confirmed will be debuting in 2023. We will be having live action versions of Star Wars Rebels. Satine Wren, who was a fan favorite character, uh, has a little bit of a mystery to her story, but uh, now she has been confirmed as to being in the live action Ahsoka show, and she'll be played by Natasha Liu Bordizzo possibly Bordizo, but it doesn't make sense. Uh, we also saw that uh, we, they brought out Chopper on stage, announcing that Chopper was going to be in the show as well. Uh, Chopper was in Rebels, as well as Harris and Dula, who you might remember as the uh, green, I want to say green-haired, but it's like a skin, green-skinned Twi'lek pilot, who was, uh, by the end, the romantic partner of Kanan. And there is no actress named for her yet, but they just confirmed, I guess, through visuals that she will be part of the series as well. Um, they also showed a mural of Ezra Bridger that will be appearing in the show. So there's a pretty good chance that we're going to be seeing him. The whole thing seems to be kind of spinning out of uh, Rebels. It's basically just going to be a continuation of Rebels. So the people who are saying that they're trying to erase Rebels really need to stop. <laughs> um, Ezra's appearance at the disappearance at the end of Rebels is set to be most of the plot of Ahsoka. Uh, it's been theorized as showing up in future Star Wars plots since the show ended, and I have no doubt that that being the bulk of the plot, Ezra's been cast. They have Ezra. He's probably already filmed his scenes, um, but I'm, I'm really excited for it. Uh, whoever, you know, Hera is going to be, whatever fun uh, throw-in characters they might give us from Rebels, it's going to be a blast. The show Andor was announced a few years ago, but we finally get the first teaser trailer um, for at this event. I have that one linked in the description as well. It's very Cloak and Dagger's Rebellion rising up from the bottom. Which makes sense, because this series is going to be starring Diego Luna as Cassio Andor. Cassio, oh my god. Sorry, Cassian Andor. Uh, and this is going to be premiering with the first two episodes on August 31st of this year, 2022, so mark your calendars. Uh, this will be taking place five years prior to Rogue One, and it will be setting the stage for the events of what we see happening in that movie. Uh, the first season is going to be consisting of 12 episodes, so it's a pretty long one for a Disney Plus original show, or for at least one of these uh, kind of Disney Marvel kind of owned ones, I guess, uh, adjacent ones. Um, and then a second part is already in the works with another 12 episodes, which will wrap up the series in its entirety. This was first announced in 2018 following a massive fan outcry after the ending of Rogue One, which saw the death of all the characters directly involved in the plot, including, of course, Cassie and Andor. As he was a, uh, a major fan favorite, they're making up for the deaths in a way by giving us the show, explaining, I guess, just why he was kind of so cool. 
cool. Hence it ending after two seasons, we know how his story will end. Again, you can see the trailer. I should have gotten the names of who's going to be in the cast and everything, but it's a lot of characters who you'll recognize from Rogue One. Um, uh, and yeah, check it out in the trailer in the description. Star Wars Skeleton Crew was announced as a new Disney Plus original series, as these all are, that will launch in 2023, starring Jude Law. The show is created by John Watts and Christopher Ford. You might remember John Watts from the recent Spider-Man trilogy. And the show will follow a group of 10-year-old kids from a small planet who get lost out in the galaxy, apparently, and must try to find their way home. The story will take place after Return of the Jedi and will fit in the timeline of The Mandalorian and Ahsoka post-collapse of the Galactic Empire. Insiders are describing the series as Stand By Me in Space. Um, Skeleton Crew is actually the name of a collection of short stories that were published in 1985 by Stephen King, who is also the author of the short story upon which the movie Stand By Me was based. Now, I know nothing about the movie Stand By Me. I don't know if I've really ever heard a thing about it in my entire life, so I had to look it up uh, to give some context to this news. Uh, Stand By Me was a 1986 movie starring Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, and Jerry O'Connell, and somebody out there was going, oh, she's so young. Get over it. Um, uh, plot of the movie. After learning that a stranger has been accidentally killed near their rural homes, four Oregon boys decide to go see the body. Of course. On the way, Jordy Lish- oh, this is like the R, why men live longer, or something like that. Whatever that subreddit is about why- or why women live longer. It's not men, no. I had it wrong. Anyway, it says, on the way, Jordy Lachance, Will Wheaton, Vern Tessio, Jerry O'Connell, Chris Chambers, River Phoenix, and Teddy Duchamp, Corey Feldman, encounter a mean junk man and a marsh full of leeches, as they also learn more about one another and their very different home lives. Just a lark at first, the boys' adventure evolves into a defining event in their lives. It's a coming-of-age boys movie from the 80s. I mean, it does not sound like my style. No wonder I haven't heard of it. Um, so with all of that in mind, will these kids be in the middle of a murder mystery conspiracy in space? That could be fun, legitimately. Star Wars The Acolyte was one that was announced some time ago as well. It is a nine-part Disney Plus series that is written by Leslie Headland and is going to be set 100 years before episode one during the, what is known as the High Republic era, exploring how a time of peace slowly began to erode as we eventually saw during the prequel trilogy. Uh, creator and writer Leslie Headland says... The High Republic is so golden in so many ways. What are we turning a blind eye to that could lead to the rise of somebody like Palpatine about a century later? Yes, it's one bad guy, but it's one bad guy that completely undermines the entire system of government. You can't just end up with George Lucas's Phantom Menace situation if things, if everything is going well. She also says, you could not pay me enough to try and be in the Luke Skywalker timeline. There's too much iconography and intensity with those particular characters. I think I'm telling a story that's more about a timeline we don't know much about. Let's hang out here for a little bit and check out what Star Wars looks like when the when the good guys are actually in charge. What happens? We know what it eventually leads to, so let's explore. What are the holes that we can poke at into what happened? I, I mean, that, that sounds fascinating. I don't think we have too much about the plot, but 
I am all for them diving into new eras of the Star Wars universe that we have yet to see um, expanded on yet. That is all 100% good to me. Now getting into the animated and kids projects, these last three is what those are, starting with Star Wars Tales of the Jedi. This is an anthology of original animated shorts that are going to be headed to Disney Plus this fall, developed by Dave Filoni and Charles Murray. This is, they're going to be set in the prequel era, and the series is going to focus on two different Jedi characters that we already know from that period, namely Ahsoka Tano and Count Dooku. The six episodes of the series, the first three are going to be looking at different moments in Ahsoka's life from infanthood on. The second half will do the same, but with Count Dooku. We also know that Liam Neeson is returning to voice Qui-Gon Jinn in this series for the first time since his appearance in the animated Clone Wars series. Many people, although that is known, many people, including myself, are still speculating on whether Neeson is going to be returning as live-action Qui-Gon in the Obi-Wan Kenobi series in these next few weeks. I think ultimately... Uh, what it comes down to is there will be mass disappointment if he doesn't, is, is kind of where that lands. Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation is an animated short that will be arriving on Disney Plus on August 15th. Um, it is set in the aftermath of Rise of Skywalker, it is probably going to be just a very lighthearted comedic thing that has very little to do with anything canon. So if that's what you're into, go for it. Have some fun. The last show we're talking about is Star Wars Young Jedi Adventures. Uh, this is going to be a High Republic kids show coming on Disney Plus and Disney Junior in 2023 aimed at pre-kindergarten children. So please don't get upset about what they put in this show. It's literally not meant for you. Um, it's going to be following the galaxy expanding galaxy spanning adventures of a group of youthful Jedi in training, apparently also in the High Republic era. Indiana Jones 5 was more or less confirmed as to happening and having, uh, as I say, Indiana Jones in it, Harrison Ford in it, um, and they basically just showed a single image as a first look and it's not much, you can't even really see Harrison in it. Um, they must be paying him so much money for this. The man is, what, 80 now? Oh my god, so much money. Um, but I guess, you know, as long as he's happy, I, I, ho I certainly hope he's happy, dude. I hope they're not twisting his arm. <laughs> as long as he's happy is all, I, is all I gotta say about this whole Indiana Jones 5 thing. <laughs> Jury's still out on that one, though. Uh, Willow also came out. I, to context, I literally don't know a thing about Willow. I didn't do the research, though, because I'll probably watch it before too long. Uh, it did come with the trailer, which I have, again, linked in the description for you. Um, it is going to be premiering on Disney Plus November 30th. It is a sequel that's happening 200 years after the 1988 original, with Warwick Davis returning as... New is it Newellen or Nelwyn? Because Nelwyn is what it looks like, but that is not what my brain wants me to say. Uh, Nelwyn the Dwarf and Sorcerer Willow Ulf Ufgood? Is it the same guy? Oh, the Nel- Okay, gotcha. I'm reading this entirely wrong. He is not Nelwyn the dwarf. He is a Nelwyn dwarf. But he is the sorcerer known as Willow Ufgood. I told you I knew nothing about this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
Real briefly, more or less, we have three games that they talked about, um, as far as I could tell, <laughs> at the Star Wars celebration. The first being Star Wars Jedi Survivor. This game is a sequel to the highly lauded Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order video game that came out just a couple of years ago. It once again follows Cal Kestis and his mission to escape the Empire and those looking to hunt him and the remaining Jedi. They gave the first trailer, which... I guess I should probably find and link in the description for those of you who are curious. And it has a 2022 release window. All right, there's the link for you there. Uh, they also have Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 2, The Sith Lords, which is apparently a sequel to Knights of the Old Republic, but specifically for Nintendo Switch. Um, that's all I got for that one, besides the release date of June 8th, 2022. And finally, Star Wars Hunters. Literally all I have is that it's a multiplayer combat game. That's all I have written here. Um, so those are the games. There are also three comics that were announced at the uh, Star Wars Celebration. The first of which is The High Republic. Uh, there is currently a High Republic comic going at Marvel. Uh, but they are going to be bringing back writer Kevin Scott and artist Ario Anindito for a new story relaunching the series set 150 years before the first volume set on the force-rich planet of Jeddah. Um, is going to be launching this fall in October of 2022 as part of what they're calling Phase 2 of the ongoing High Republic Initiative. Uh, the series is going to introduce a new Jedi character named Vildar Mac and will take place, as I said, on Jeddah, the holy moon that was introduced in Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, which we have already discussed. An additional comic taking place in, in the High Republic Initiative Phase 2, I suppose is what they're calling it at Marvel. Star Wars The Blade. I guess it's actually Star Wars The High Republic The Blade. This one is coming from uh, legendary, more or less, Star Wars writer Charles Soule with artist Marco Castiello. Or possibly Castiello? Uh, well, they will be teaming up for a four-issue miniseries here focusing on Jedi-turned-cook-porter Engel go figure, otherwise known as the Blade of Bardota. The Blade number one is due out this November. Finally, in the world of Star Wars comics at Star Wars Celebration, they announced Star Wars Yoda, which is a 10-issue maxi-series starring the Jedi Grandmaster set shortly before The Empire Strikes Back. It is going to see him reflecting on three different eras of his life in the first arc slash era be written by Kevon Scott and with art by Nico Leon set during the High Republic, which makes sense because Kevon Scott, is it Kevin or Kevon? I don't know, uh, is currently writing the High Republic stuff. The second uh, arc in the second era is going to be by Jody Hauser, who I adore, with art by Luke Ross and will feature a young Count Dooku, who you remember was actually, um, am I mistaken in that? Was he Yoda's apprentice at one point? I think he was. Um, and finally, Mark Guggenheim and Alessandro Miracolo will helm the final arc of the series beginning in October 2022. Wedging away from Star Wars for just a few minutes. For a bit here. We got a bit. Um, the only bit of coming soon news and announcements I have is super exciting for me and hopefully for some of you as well. They have officially announced in a way, uh, that Netflix is doing a Horizon Zero Dawn live-action TV show. Super exciting. We don't know much about it. 
pretty much nothing, but sources tell Deadline that it is in early development. So it's happening. Uh, the original game, of course, won Game of the Year in, I believe, 2017. And rightfully so. The sequel, uh, Forbidden Wilds, I believe. Nope, Forbidden West. Frozen Wilds was the thingy. Uh, Forbidden West uh, came out this past, well, not this past, this February 2022. I haven't had a chance to play it yet because I sold my PS three is that the one that i had i, I sold ps4 is the one i had um so if you'd like to gift me one of those so i can play horizon zero dawn the sequel i would be so down um or just find me a way to play it on my computer <laughs> Uh, but I absolutely, I am not a big gamer. Horizon Zero Dawn is one of maybe three or four games that I have ever latched onto, like, uncontrollably. Completely adore it, have played it beginning to end, and all of the expansion, except for, I think, the last bit that I got stuck in that horde cave. Uh, but anyway, I am just totally thrilled. As long as they get the visual effects right and, like, decent acting, I kind of feel like they can't do wrong. I'm gonna, definitely gonna regret saying that now that I've said it. Uh, please be decent. Oh, but what am I talking about? I haven't even mentioned that Horizon Zero Dawn also has comics. They're published by uh, Titan Comics, and they are really good. They're written by uh, game story developers, people who are actually involved with the game and everything. Um, so that's super exciting. Um, the first one, um, it started with Free Comic Book Day, I want to say, in 2019, um, possibly 2020. Um, and then they had a four-issue series that came out after that, and then they had a second series of four issues that just came out uh, this past year. So um, there are nine total Horizon Zero Dawn comic issues out there that you can find. Um, the free comic book day one, of course, you're not going to find for free out there anymore, especially not after this news. Um, so get your hands on those while you can. There's also volumes. Volumes tend to not go up in price as much as single issues do, but, um, check this stuff out. I, you know, couldn't tell you for the life of me if they're going to be going in the direction of the game. They, they, they must be going in the direction of the game plot, right? They're not going to go in the comics stuff because that's that's kind of extending out the game and they got to cover the game first or people are going to be upset, right? If they do as well as they did with Witcher, they did Witcher really well. Yeah. Are they still doing God of War? Is that a thing? I don't know. Um, but yeah, super stoked. Read the comics, play the game. Love it. Absolutely love it. Wrapping up the news with two bits of comic news. The first is a bit brief, but it's a kind of a big deal, is that the Harley Quinn comic is moving to weekly as of August 2022. Not bi-monthly, not tri-monthly, but actually weekly, no matter how many Tuesdays come out in a month. DC will be publishing a Harley Quinn comic on each Tuesday. That's so much. Um, if you're a reader of comics, you know that's a huge deal. If you're not a reader of comics, comics usually come out once a month. Um, this is at least four times the amount of material. Um, in my mind, that's a bad sign. <laughs> Real bad sign. Especially because, um, they're sending her to space with this new team they're calling Task Force... Task Force XX. I got tongue twisted there. Um... 
I, I don't, I mean, it, this kind of just feels like, what are we going to do with Harley? I don't know. Send her to space. That literally sounds like how that conversation went in my head. Um, in my mind, you know, you could do so much more with her. Give her, for just throwing something out there, give her Harley core. Make her in charge of something, dealing with real world responsibilities of being a boss of a legit corporation, day-to-day stuff about running a business, blah, blah, blah. You know, that would be a crazy, like they did Deadpool core. Do something similar with Harley. She had her gang of Harleys, but that was not anything legit. They could still do better is what I'm saying. I feel like even with this, I, I feel like the four times a four times a month or not four times a month. What, see, I'm, I'm not even, it's a weekly. It's not four times a month. It's weekly. That's going to be difficult. <laughs> I think for readership as well as for writership. We'll see. Uh, other comic news. The Hellfire Gala is not coming until July, but the Hellfire Gala variants are coming all through June, starting this week on June 1st. Um, all of these covers are variants of different outfits that the characters are wearing. Um, you know, it's meant to be like the Met Gala for superheroes, It's is what they have kind of been saying. So there really should be a theme to their outfits, right? You know, make all they sometimes do, they sometimes don't actually care about the theme. Um, but with this, with these, this is supposed to be the make all of superheroes and all, all this is, is like the craziest, wildest designs that they can think of. But that's not even it really. It's, that's only sometimes. And then you have their ones that are just high fashion and the ones that are pretty close to just being their standard hero outfit. So it, it's wildly inconsistent. And I feel like getting that improved upon would make people a little bit more impressed with the overall design if they're going to keep this an annual thing, especially. In any case, uh, let's go over what these covers are going to be and when you can get them, and then we can move on to other stuff. Uh, starting off with Shang-Chi number 13 is going to have a Chris Bocciolo variant. I don't know why I said that. Chris Bocciolo variant by, uh, of, of Namor, not by Namor. I don't know why him and not Shang-Chi, but whatever. X-Force number 29 has a uh, cover of Forge by Miguel Mercado. X-Men number 12 is by Inyuk Lee, featuring Cyclops. And then we have June 8th, we have The Amazing Spider-Man number 5, featuring obviously Spider-Man by Russell Dodderman, who did design the majority of these covers, but not all of, not, um, outfits, the majority of these outfits, but not all of them. Black Panther number 7 is by Erica D'Urso, for some reason features Captain Marvel. Uh, Fantastic Four number 45 is by Russell Dodderman featuring Doctor Doom. And then we have June 15th with Iron Man number 21, Iron Man by Ian Coelho, Iban Coelho, my bad. Spider-Man, or Miles Morales Spider-Man number 39 by Russell Dodderman featuring Black Widow. Moon Knight number 12 by Russell Dodderman featuring Scarlet Witch. I cannot stand her outfit, I'm sorry. Wolverine number 22 by Russell Dodderman featuring Wolverine. Then on June 22nd, uh, we have Avengers 57 featuring Captain America by Carmen Carnero, who is a star. We have Captain America Symbol of Truth number 2 featuring a cover by Mateus Manhanini. Mahanini, uh, which is again Captain America, but the other one. And we have Gambit number two with a cover by Russell Dodderman featuring, you guessed it, Gambit. 
<laughs> uh, on Hulk, it will be She-Hulk uh, by Russell Dodderman. On Knights of X number three, it will be Rogue by Mahmoud Asrar. On Marauders number four, it will be Sink by Russell Dodderman. And X-Men number red number four by Jen Bartel is Jean Grey. On June 29th, we have the final week of covers featuring Immortal X-Men number four with Emma Frost by Megan Hetrick, which I, if any, if you get any of them, get that one. Uh, then you have Legion of X number three, uh, covered by Russell Dodderman featuring Havoc and New Mutants 27 with Magic, of course, by Russell Dodderman. The gala itself is taking place in Hellfire Gala number one in its entirety on July 13th after being pushed back two weeks from its initial release date of July 29th. It's going to be written by Gary Duggan with art by Matteo Loli, C.F. Villa, Chris Anka, and Russell Dodderman. Covers include, uh, you have one by Russell Dodderman, an art germ variant, and one of 100 virgin variant, well, one of 25's uh, Arthur Adams variant, I don't know why I almost said Adam West. A 1 of 50 Adam Hughes variant. A David Nakayama Standard and Virgin Shop Exclusive variant. A Nick Dragota cover. A Carlos Gomez promo variant that might be showing the new Deep Cut X-Men lineup. Um, so we'll have to kind of wait and see if they clarify. Well, they will be clarifying that because that's supposed to be the whole thing about the Hellfire Gala is they're announcing the new X-Men lineup. Just like last year, they picked one. I feel like they just finished the, the Hellfire Gala last year. Um, but I have a link to see all the, these covers in their entirety in the description below. Skipping right into comic book polls this week, because again, I have not read a single comic in the past several days. Uh, I've been wildly busy and wildly not feeling well. Uh, but enough about that. Um, these are releases coming out on the shoot on the 31st and the first i had said 30 it was 31 days in june anna starting with code 45 number one which i guess i did talk about last episode but i had the date wrong so it's happening again this is coming from scout comics by writer benjamin hunting and artist joel ing um definitely said that one wrong it says, there are dragons lurking in the tunnels beneath Montreal city streets. At least that's the rumor that confronts new Metro driver T Vanessa. Terrified by these mysterious and horrifying apparitions, the night shift turns to self-medication, losing the ability to tell the difference between reality and fantasy. Pulled in deep by the underground raves that blast the system's abandoned stations, Vanessa quickly finds herself on the verge of crossing into a dark world she never knew existed. Justice League Road to Dark Crisis number one kicks off more or less the Dark Crisis event. They said they weren't going to do more crises, but they're doing it anyway. It is by Brandon Thomas, Stephanie Phillips, Joshua Williamson, Chuck Brown, Philip Kennedy Johnson, and Jeremy Adams, with artists Clayton Henry, Dan Jurgens, Emmanuel Lupacino, Leila Del Duca, and Fico Fico Osio Osio. I'm sorry. It says, the Justice League has tragically fallen in battle, and now we see the aftermath. How does the world react to the Justice League being gone? Which heroes rise up, and which villains try to take advantage? And what dark forces are lying in wait to attack? An all-star roster of DC talent showcases a world without the Justice League, and sets the stage for next month's Dark Crisis event. Batman 2022 Annual is not something I personally will be reading, but you may be interested in it. Um, it is by Ed Brisson and John Timms, and it just says, Following the events of the Abyss story arc, Batman has now tasked Ghostmaker to finance the 
and the lead Batman Incorporated. First order of business for the new management, clean up a huge mess Luther created in Chechnya. But is this new group ready to face the fearsome new threat, the Grey Wolf, and prepare yourself for the evolution of Clown Hunter? These final two are the ones that I actually care about. <laughs> Strange number three by Jed McKay and Marcelo Fiera, Fer, Ferreira. Um, I talked about it a little bit last week, but Jed McKay, I believe, he, he does a fine enough job, but he lacks the passion for the character of Clea that I think that the series as her first solo series rightfully deserves. Regardless, uh, what the solicitation says this week is someone is preying on the misery and suffering of New York citizens. Clea Strange, that's not her last name, is all too familiar with the demons and monsters that stalk humans. But what happens when it's the humans who are hunting the monsters? Finally, Captain Marvel number 38, The Trials Part 1, Captain Marvel No More. Carol Danvers is missing. Her disappearance has left the newly sentient sentient binary to fill in but stepping into the shoes of one of earth's greatest heroes is no easy feat as binary finds herself plunged into a world she barely understands the questions about who and what binary is grow deeper and where is captain marvel anyway a brand new story arc starts here as kelly thompson's award-winning epic adventure continues this is marvel marvel legacy number 172 meaning this is captain marvel uh, 172 i don't know if they're going by Captain Marvel or by they must be going by Captain Marvel not by Carol's issues this one is by Kelly Thompson Juan Frigari and Alvaro Lopez um, and unfortunately looking at solicitations for the coming months Captain Marvel issues it looks like they're doing what I expected but really hope they wouldn't and are making binary a villain what was the point of killing that kitten in the last issue to show her empathy and to show her how fragile life is and how precious life is? What was the point of any of that? If you're just gonna, if you're just gonna, like, what was the point if you're just gonna ever be evil? Why'd you have to kill a kitten, Kelly Thompson? You, you murder porn writer. I don't know. I'm just mad about the kitten now. Anyway, get excited because we're going to talk Obi-Wan Kenobi episodes one and two now. Actually, what were the titles of those episodes? <laughs> Just part one and part two. Fun stuff, Disney. Um, it premiered, they premiered actually late Thursday night. They did it, um, I guess, technically a midnight East Coast drop here in the US. So it was up at nine o'clock our time and we stayed up and watched it because we're losers. Just kidding. We're awesome. Um, we're going to go over a couple of different sections here, uh, just to kind of broke it down to make it kind of more organized. We're talking general stuff. We're talking that opener. We're talking Obi-Wan's years, 10 down, 10, Obi-Wan's life, 10 years down the line. If I could get the words in the right order, things would be great. Uh, we're going to go over the Inquisitors, the kids, uh, which if you don't know who I'm talking about, I guess, spoiler alert, cause we're going to be spoiling everything in this. It's Luke and Leia. Um, we're going to be talking Dayu and that big reveal, the Vader reveal, and then I have a little bit that I would like to discuss about Padme Amidala as well, because a girl's got to stand. Starting off with General, though, um, it has been over 15 gosh darn years 
uh, my notes don't say gosh darn, just so you know. Uh, since Ewan McGregor has played Obi-Wan Kenobi, but you would not know that by simply watching this. He falls back into that role like it was yesterday, and it feels as natural as anything. The show is undoubtedly a severe love letter to the prequels, which have themselves come a very long way in that time as well. Public opinion has changed vastly over the last two plus decades of prequel discourse as the audience ourselves have grown and changed as well. The change of opinions and feelings towards the prequels can be attributed in no small part to subsequent Star Wars projects, specifically the Clone Wars and Rebels animated shows, which expanded the era and immediate aftermath under new eyes and new and familiar characters, filling out the story to give more context and detail to the prequels era. And so, in being somewhat a love letter to the episodes one through three, speaking Star Wars episodes one through three, uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi show is bringing up a love and passion for this specific era of Star Wars that many of us haven't felt since those movies came out in our childhood or teenage years. Again, this is in no small way contributed contributes to the comfort and familiarity of these first two episodes and Ewan's Kenobi. On a darker note, that opener... Um, uh, current events uh it kind of that with that opener it brought up a lot of emotion regarding current events and it kind of killed me um, um i don't know i mean they couldn't have possibly done that on purpose please don't be a conspirator in my comments i don't need that um <laughs> nobody needs that um but it was it was very it was it was it was surprising uh, we'll just say that um it was also a new perspective on the events of post order 66 immediate post order 66 asking what happened to the rest of the facility and the kids who were there there had to be so many um, so no doubt the one scene that we saw in Revenge of the Sith of Anakin going into that one room, that was not, that was not contained, it was not contained to that room. It was a, it's a big training facility here. Also, is it possible that we're going to see the story of those apparent survivors in a future project? Um, possibly later in the series. It's possible that, you know, one or two of them might already be in the series as Inquisitors or other characters. Um, or is it possible that the, some of them might show up in that um, Jude Law series? I feel like that's a bit of a stretch, but just thinking about things. Now, Obi-Wan's life 10 years down the line, it has been 10 years at this point since the end of Revenge of the Sith, and we are, in that context, now 9 years from the events of A New Hope. Obi-Wan is living as Ben uh, in his little cave. He's made allies with the locals as much as I'm sure you can. He rides in Yopi. I'm not sure if that's how you say it. It looks like it's how you say it, Yopi. It was a breed that was introduced in The Phantom Menace, just like Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, these aardvark face space camels also gave us the first Star Wars fart joke in that movie, so fun throwback. Thank you, Jar Jar. Um, Obi works for some, or sorry, I should say Ben. Ben works for some kind of meat, it's basically a meat processing plant in the middle of the desert, um, harvesting and portioning what appears to be dragon meat found off of a dead body, which I guess it just lasts for a long time because it's so big. Um, 
my husband mentioned that it reminded us of um, We Only Find Them When They're Dead, which is a comic that had so much potential. And then the second arc of it, it was about these giant creatures, these giant, like, like you're not even the size of the teardrop that falls their eye. Like you are, your home is the size of their teardrop, you know, giant beings that would appear in space. And it was like this fascinating thing. Where do they come from? They call them gods. Are they gods? What is this big mystery of they just show up in space and they're always dead? And then the second arc went and became political about the society that, that is like adjacent to that. And I was like, you know what? That's not what the series is about. I digress massively. Um, point being, harvesting dragon meat or something in the desert um, seems to be a pretty chill job. He can sneak out a few pieces for his little, his little aardvark, aardvark, aardvark face space camel buddy. Um, his little yopi, yopi, yopi. The more I say it, the weirder it sounds. Um, we also <laughs> run into a Jedi. I don't remember his name. I didn't write it down. Uh, who is actually from the, the the books, I believe, the books of the comics. Um, but it was uh, he was he's a real he's a dude. He's you know from canon, um, and he dies in this because he's honestly kind of an idiot. Uh, he almost outs Obi Wan as well, almost on accident. Uh, well, entirely on accident, I guess. Um, and the way they, 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 they kill him, they probably just shoot him and string up his body. But the way that apparently happened in the uh, other canon, whatever the material he showed up in before, was uh, that he was beaten brutally and hung from the neck on display as opposed from being tied up uh, by the chest. So a lot more brutal, um, but not really, I think, the kind of tone that they were looking for, even though that would definitely set a specific tone for what they're willing to do to find the Jedi. Although Reva does get that pretty well across in her own way. So that's Obi's wife. Wife. That's Ben's life, is what I should be saying. Uh, ten years down the line, he's just kind of like chilling on Tatooine, trying to stay under the radar, has not done anything remotely Jedi related in a decade. As for the Inquisitors, now if you're wondering who or what are the Inquisitors, they did a fairly good, I think they did a pretty good job. They did, I think they covered pretty much as much as you really need to know in the episodes themselves, but in case you, you don't remember, um, they are Force users, often former Jedi or former Padawans, who hunt down escaped surviving Jedi after Order 66. They are oftentimes much like Vader, uh, with mechanical parts altering their physical bodies, which will more than likely come into play real quick on this show, but more on that in a minute. They seem to have hunted out all of the Jedi in the galaxy, you know, for the most part, except for the last couple of scraps, one of which is Obi-Wan Kenobi. Going through the four that we see on this episode, the Grand Inquisitor is first introduced in Rebels, where he is killed by Kanan, one of the last Jedi Padawans. Kanan was never actually ordained a true Jedi, so his death is kind of comical in the sense that he was taken out by a mere Padawan in all technicality. On that note, yes, he is stabbed through the stomach in the second episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi, leading us to believe that he is dead. No doubt that he isn't, as they've already made a point of canonizing Rebels, the whole Ahsoka thing, you know, that show is going to be mostly because of Rebels. Uh, and that is where we see him officially die much later on. So this is probably where those mechanics are going to come in, and they will have machine parts from uh, other engineers or altered body parts. Uh, so trying to kill him 
is probably going to be a bit like trying to kill Vader. It's, it'll take more than a lightsaber through the stomach. Additionally, he is being played by Rupert Friend, who is a pretty big actor, at least in my opinion, from what I'm familiar with. Uh, so that's another reason I don't think he's dead. They're not going to put Rupert Friend on a contract for two episodes. I just don't see that happening. Obviously, the other uh, alternative being the character who we see in Rebels is a clone of this character or some other relation in that sense. Uh, and also kudos to Robert Friend, sorry, Rupert Friend for owning the craft and wearing all of that face makeup, unlike some big Hollywood egos who would not do that for the character and instead just want to have their face seen. Christian Bale. <clears throat> in case you missed that, I was, I was saying Christian Bale. Okay. Uh, now moving on to Reva. Her name is Reva Savander. She's played by Moses Ingram. Um, she is kind of a genius, with a, a brutal genius, if that, uh, how to find the Jedi by threatening others. She's completely aware of um, how to get their goat, so to say. Um, I'm very curious what her backstory is. She has this massive hard-on for hating Obi-Wan Kenobi and wanting to bring him in. Um, part of that could be later we get the reveal that, yes, she's working for Vader. Uh, really, they all work for Vader. But, um, and she's like, really, really wants his acceptance or approval. I don't see that being the only thing. I think that there's going to be a little bit more to it. There's got to be some kind of personal connection that she feels that she had, um, possibly as being a student of a Jedi in the past. Maybe one of those kids who ran away in that opening scene of the first episode. Who's to say at this point? Um, on Twitter, I found this really interesting quote. Also, y'all are complaining about Reva being over the top and Inquisitor shouldn't be like that or over the top, but y'all eat it up when Kylo Ren is throwing a temper tantrum or when Maul yells Kenobi 15,000 times, which I felt was super accurate because I'm so tired of female characters being crapped on because of really racist and sexist reasons. On that note, Moses Ingram recently told The Independent that Lucasfilm executives themselves warned her that she would likely face harassment online from racist Star Wars trolls as a black woman entering the franchise in the series. She says it was something that Lucasfilm actually got in front of and said, this is a thing that unfortunately likely will happen, but we are here to help you and you can let us know when it happens. Her credits include being an Emmy winner for The Queen's Gambit and an Oscar nominee for The Tragedy of, Tragedy of Macbeth. She also said that director Deborah Chow has put, quote, the proper systems in place so I feel safe as we do the work. She added, Obi-Wan is going to bring the most diversity I think we've ever seen in the galaxy before. To me, it's long overdue. If you've got talking droids and aliens but no people of color, it doesn't make any sense. It's 2022, you know, so we're just at the beginning of that change. But I think to start that change is better than never having started it, unquote excellent line there. I think she's 100% correct, uh, and I uh, agree completely. Uh, the other two, I was gonna say Sith, the other two Inquisitors that we see are uh, fifth brother and fourth sister, uh, Reva being, I believe, third sister or second sister? Whichever she is. Uh, we see fifth brother, who is a character from Rebels. He's somewhat samurai-like in design, 
or rather more so than others, played here by Sung Kang. And we have Fourth Sister, played here by Rhea Kilstedt. Uh, she is the one who is, she's the female one who looks like a uh, cousin, maybe, of the Twi'leks, something like that. Um, fun fact, Commander Linda Graff in the comics stole Fourth Sister's armor to try and infiltrate Vader's castle in the Marvel Star Wars comics. So this is actually the first time that we're seeing her as herself. Or is she? Dun dun dun. Moving on to the kids. Um, my cat just fell out of the window. I gotta go help her. Okay, she's fine. So Luke, we obviously have much less to say about. If you've seen the episode, you'll 100% understand. Luke is played by Grant Feely. He is pretty much just like his dad at that age, running off and pretending to be flying a racer of some kind. Obi-Wan tries to give him a Ben. Ben tries to give him a toy. It is a model T-16 Skyhopper, which he gets from one of the local Jawas, but Owen knows that it came from him and insists that he leave them alone, citing Anakin's fate as his reasoning. Also in A New Hope, the T-16 Skyhopper is um, more or less what he is messing around with in the scene when he is uh, oil bathing R2-D2. Uh, and the last time that Owen knew Obi, uh, he basically stole his nephew and left his sister for dead, causing the death of the nephew in the end, in their minds, understandably. Um, so Owen basically hates him, but he still won't turn him in because he has got morals. The scene where Reva picks Owen out of the crowd to harass him is more than likely going to come back and haunt him later in the show. They will definitely be interacting again. Moving on to Leia, played by Vivian Lyra Blair. Uh, she is a more important character to the episode than her brother, for sure. We meet her first on Alderaan, constantly causing problems for her parents, the Organas. Bale, played by Jimmy Smits, and Breha, played by Simone Kessel, who was replacing Revenge of the Sith actress Rebecca Jackson Mendoza. They adopted Leia after the death of her mother, Padme, who was an ally of Bale's in the Galactic Senate. This also means that they are only nine years from Alderaan's entire destruction. I absolutely love all of the, the details that they gave um, They gave young Leia. Um, she has the little buddy droid named Lola, which I have no doubt will continue to play a role in her part of the story. Um, you know, insulting her cousin brutally, I'm sure she could make the Inquisitors try if she could, or cry if she could, if she tried. I can't speak today. I have been sick, like I said. Um, and then we have young Leia's burgundy and olive outfits are easily matching uh, that of her mother and future self from the other movies, which I will be posting that image for reference on my Twitter. It is also just four years, she is just four years younger than her mother was when she became Queen of Naboo. Here Leia is taken as hostage by minions working for Inquisitor Reva, which include Flea, the basis from Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, Reva knows that Obi-Wan has a connection to Bail Organa, and he will come out of hiding to save her for him. She's right, of course, but for more reasons than she even knows. The more to it than that is that Leia was not Bail's daughter, but adopted off the hands of Obi-Wan after the death of Padme, who both Bail and Obi-Wan have deep ties with. So Leia is important to Bail, Obi, and the galaxy more than Reva even, even knows right now. And remember, it's canon that even Yoda tells Obi-Wan later in life that they chose the wrong twin when they assumed Luke was the more powerful of the two. 
it was always meant to be Leia. He does say the line at one point uh, in the second episode, you remind me of someone clearly talking about Padme, her mother, who was herself a great leader. Their dynamic quickly becomes similar to that of Grogu and Din, the lone wolf and cub setup. I have a quote from Decider writer Megan O'Keefe, whose article I have linked below. She says, that is a trope of Japanese samurai storytelling where a hardened warrior finds purpose on the run with a young charge. The warrior also softens because of the child. It's such a perfect convention for Star Wars, not only because the universe is rooted in samurai film motifs, but because it gives everyone watching something to emotionally latch onto. Again, that article, which is actually a really good article about how uh, Obi-Wan and Leia's relationship was the heart of these two episodes, uh, is again linked in the description. Um, in fact, this show was apparently going to be entirely about Obi-Wan and Leia doing the Lone Wolf and Cub thing before Mandalorian came out, and then they had to decide to switch it up so it would be a little bit more different from that show. It's also Leia that finally gets Obi-Wan to break out of break out his force use for likely the first time in those 10 years when she falls off a rooftop and he's forced to try his hardest to save her. He accesses the power just in time, convincing her at last that he is not here to hurt her and that yes, he truly is a real Jedi. With all of this in mind, it's really no wonder that she reaches out to him when Alderaan and the entire galaxy really is on the line. He wasn't just an ally of her father's that she'd heard of her whole life, they were actually close personally, and he has a history of coming to her aid when she truly needs it. The planet Dayu is where Leia is taken when she is kidnapped. It is a Blade Runner-esque city of a planet that is run or overrun with drug dealers and mercenaries, a refuge of scum and villainy as a whole planet, apparently, that you can't contact from uh, the outside from the surface. Obi-Wan is gifted what looks like a huge quantity to me of spice from a dealer on the street as soon as he arrives, no joke, which he uses as a distraction later on to escape the thieves' den with Leia. Spice is the chosen drug of the Star Wars universe, long since known to cause major societal issues across the whole galaxy, both in its use and its creation. Interestingly, it looks like we see a space drug den in this episode as well, which is hilariously reminiscent of um, Breaking Bad, which I never watched with the blue crystals and everything. Um, this can't be where the spice is initially made because we know that it's harvested at least to some extent, but it's likely where they manipulate the drug or other drugs to have different effects. We see a soldier, <laughs> this was a cool moment, uh, Tamora Morrison reprises his role as Clone Wars Soldier, unnamed Clone Wars Soldier, likely, um, as a uh, original clone from pre-Order 66 who has now just a beggar on the street using his helmet to collect change from people going by, including, not change from them, but going by includes uh, new clones who are now not actually clones. They're now stormtroopers who, uh, as they go down the line, become less clone and more recruit. Um, at this point in the galaxy, former clones no longer have a place in the order of things and have been subsequently treated as second-class citizens. Gee, does that sound like our own state of veteran affairs? Hmm. Anyway, um, the Jedi of 
Dayu. This was a cool one. Uh, we knew that Kumail Nanjiani was going to be appearing, but it was very hush-hush who he was going to be. His character, Haja Estri, makes his appearance in episode two as the supposed Jedi of Dayu. You get in touch with him if you need to get off the planet in a hurry, usually to escape the encroaching Inquisitors and the like. He uses Jedi trickery to convince you who he is, gets you your way out, and all you have to do is pay an arm and a leg, not literally. Hopefully. Uh, spoiler alert, duh, he is not really a Jedi. He's just really good with magnets and triggers and has at least one or two guys on the inside helping him look convincing to make the charge worth it, aside from obviously planetary escape. What turned out to really rock about his character though was that he was an honest to God good guy. When Reva puts out the word across the planet to hunt Obi-Wan, Hajra Estri and his companion see the alert and say that they need to get to him first. For a minute, it looks like they're trying to stab him in the back and turn him in, but Haja ends up actually saving Obi-Wan and giving him the means to escape with Leia. Even more surprising than anything, I think, in the whole episode, when Reva discovers Haja Estri is a fake Jedi, she just scans his mind for where they went and leaves him behind, specifically not killing him. I think that would have been a real big downer at that point, especially seeing with what was coming the big reveal. When Reva catches up to Obi-Wan and Leia and stabs her boss to ensure that she gets the credit of capture, she takes her moment to give Obi the biggest shock of his entire mortal life. Anakin Skywalker isn't dead. In fact, he's not just alive, he's Darth Vader, her Sith Lord boss, and he wants his revenge against Obi-Wan, former mentor, master, best friend, and brother. Woof! Immediately, his his face, first of all, his face, when I tell you that Ewan McGregor dropped right back into the shoes of Obi-Wan with grace and precision, his face, I mean, a nomination would be nice. I'm not the kind of person who runs out here and is like, oh, give him an Oscar. Oscars obviously aren't a thing that would even come near this because it's TV, first, for, first of all. Um, but, but I feel like if this continues, if this performance continues, I was wildly impressed. If that continues for all six episodes without any kind of fail, okay, dude, you, you, you've earned yourself some, what is it, a Grammy? No, that's music. Emmy nomination? I think that's a thing, right? Um, I'm not into celebrity worship, but wow, dude, that was heart-wrenching. Uh, and immediately you can see that Obi, like, he, he he searches out feeling for Anakin through the force, you know, thanks in large part to Leia's recent fall, knocking him kind of back into shape. And immediately, what do we see? But Annika wake, Anakin waking up in his back to tank, feeling Obi-Wan right back in turn again for the first time in a decade. Oh my gosh, it was so good. I'm trying not to yell. Um, of course, Anakin is obsessively furious with Obi-Wan and wants revenge. He likely still blames him for the death of Padme and their children as he saw it all go down. Meanwhile, from Obi-Wan's side, it is just pain and confusion and more confusion and pain. And on top of all of that, a really, honestly, unhealthy dose of regret. It is a lot to handle. And with it, the episode ending right there... You got, you, I got, you got, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, what's happened? What? 
I, I want to know how he reacts. <laughs> I mean, we see how he reacts, but like as a long-term thing, this is going to take him a minute, you know? This is not just like, oh, I learned and now I can, you know, know the truth. This is going to take him a minute. And we're probably going to pick up right back where that episode ended, if I had to guess, with episode three this week. The last thing here that I wanted to talk about regarding the Obi-Wan Kenobi first two episodes is Padme Amidala. Um... Oh, I don't. I, I I question how much I should say. What what is what is healthy and sane to say about Padme Amidala at this point? Um, in my personal experience, um, uh, go with the simple stuff here. I guess I was just I was really surprised uh, that people were so shocked she was mentioned. Albeit I was, you know, they were happily shocked. Um, I honestly would have been quite furious if we win the whole series and she wasn't mentioned, especially with Anakin literally being a character about to show up, technically sort of already did. Of course they mentioned Padme. I, I'm sure, and I hope, that they will be mentioning her more because she deserves it among so many reasons, just because she deserves it. Um, one thing that I do want to add that while Obi-Wan has spent a decade watching Luke grow up, as far as we know, this is the first time he meets Leia, and his, re his reaction to her initially is ultimately absolutely nothing to speak of. Whereas in contrast, we see him fawning over Luke ten years into it. It, it took them running around together pretty much all day or night or whatever to take a moment and actually realize who she was and the significance of that. Um... I guess right now I'm kind of writing that off as generalized sexism of the Jedi, ingrained sexism of the Jedi, who always seem to treat men as more natural force users of the galaxy, but the show might go on to explain that somehow uh, later. But um, on Padme specifically, I have an article linked in the description below uh, from the site Women Write About Comics, and it is entitled 20 Years of Padme Deserving Better. Now this article I had quite an experience reading because what the writer of the article speaks of in her experience of learning of Padme and learning of her fate and, and then going back later as an adult woman and re-watching the prequels with a new mindset and um, that that same childhood love uh, but with like the the adult eyes you know that you don't necessarily you don't get that as a kid um, she describes that whole thing of like the disappointment and the heartbreak and the the joy of like what the character that she is is so fantastic um, and then I think they also mention a little bit um, the uh, the Queen's series it's uh, the Queen's Hope the Queen's something I don't remember what it is but it's a trilogy of books about Padme and they go through uh, episodes one two and three from her perspective um, and it's just a really great, I haven't read them myself, but I've read a lot about them in the past few days. Um, and it's, it's, I'm going to get the first one, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Um, and we'll be reading the heck out of that. Um, because I, I do think that Padme Amidala deserves so much better. Um, if any, if, if nothing else, credit, she deserves credit. 
Moving on now to Young Justice Season 4, Episode 24, entitled Zenith and Abyss, which is not the finale. I was mistaken all throughout the last episode when I kept saying it was the finale. The finale is actually going to be uh, Episode 26. So we have an episode this week and an episode next week, assuming they don't skip around at all. Um, This episode, Zenith and Abyss, premiered this past Thursday, the 26th. Um, And we're going to hit... It's, it's not as long of a discussion as last week's, but uh, we're going we're gonna to hit on everything as we are tumbling very quickly into the last few episodes. Uh, we start off with Lore arriving at the Proa prison looking for the Kaiser Thrall. Weirdly enough, he is greeted by Tomar II, who you first see and you're like, oh, he looks just like the lantern that Lore just killed. Um, and then uh, you find out that that's actually his father. Uh, and you're like, oh wow, that's a wild coincidence. Uh, he tells him the Kaiser Thrall has been released and is on its way to the planet of its origin, which is Earth. And so then Lore actually says, as he leaves, oh, I knew your father, referencing the Green Lantern he just slaughtered. <laughs> Lore says to him then, may you follow his in, fo- in his footsteps and leaves. Oh, you sick fuck. <laughs> he then takes Bioship and his hostages in Earth's direction, uh, considering the third Legion member who isn't around anymore, Phantom Girl. Uh, in the Phantom Zone, Zaytana and her team have made it on the Magic School Bus. Yes, that is what they call it. They are on the hunt for Connor, Superboy. We already know that the trick will be getting his mind to accept reality and leave Zod behind. When they find him, he thinks that they are due to zone sickness hallucinations, which is all the time that it takes for the others to find them and ask for a way to get out, very um, threateningly. This confirms to Connor, actually, that his former teammates are real, and his mind starts to get muddled with the Zod brainwashing. Seeing Connor is an ally to them, Zod takes his chance and attempts to frame um, the, the, the kids all as the allies of Connor as well. The other team members know who he is, though, and it becomes a bit of a standoff between Zod and the Young Justice, or former Young Justice members. When Connor admits that he can't leave because he thinks he killed Superman, everybody is rightly confused. They tell him that Superman isn't dead, and the members explain they just saw him when they left. Before they left. But they confirm Krypton is in fact gone, as Connor did tell Zod. The, t- the team tries to get an agreement going, but they can't trust Zod and his allies. He says if they can't, if he can't leave, they can't either, and commands Connor to fight them. Not understanding the odd physics of the Phantom Zone, they are brutally outmatched. Also, Kryptonite doesn't respond, doesn't work in the Phantom Zone, and to save them, Zaytana has to throw up a glamour. In the Watchtower. Finally, we are catching up with Megan. Miss Martian is introduced to the female forager, who is a Green Lantern now, and I'm very proud of her, uh, telling her about the Kaiser Thrall that she brought here. The forager tells Miss Martian about the Kaiser Thrall that they brought here with her. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, the phrasing of that was ambiguous. My apologies. <laughs> She responds with some kind of shock because she is able to contact the boy inside. Turns out he is a metahuman named Danny Chase. His story is pretty dark. He was abducted, tested, activated, by which we're probably going to find out that this was Markovia, and transported to Apocalypse, where he was given to Desad, Darkseid's right-hand man. Obviously, no bueno. 
Desaad does what he does best, and now the boy is just a brain inside this box. He possesses telekinesis and multidimensional abilities, which are slowly killing him. With his abilities, he's able to communicate with them face to face. At that moment, Prince Gem of Mars video links to speak with Megan. He has reason to believe that Connor is still alive due to the Legion members who recently popped back up there. Member, singular. Superman comes to join them, meeting with Prince Gem and Phantom Girl as well. She tells them her story, or shows them really, with Megan's help. Megan is in shock, and Clark admits that he believes her. He asks Phantom Girl if she's been able to reach her two friends, the other Legion members who he met with, with an absolute secrecy. Keeping their secret, Superman continues questioning as he puts pieces together. Meanwhile, Phantom Girl agrees to try to, to try taking Megan to the Phantom Zone with her powers. You know, the fact that it's Phantom Girl in the Phantom Zone and she's not from there or related to it really in many way is very, very confusing, honestly. Uh, they first arrive in the first attempt at Bixel, which is Phantom Girl's home planet, in the 21st century, which is a wasteland long before Phantom Girl's own time. They overshot the zone, which is between Earth and Bixel. Trying again, they simply return to the Watchtower. Their attempts have failed. Predictably, Megan is in rough shape after this. She can't fathom that Connor is actually out there, but she can't get to him. But Danny thinks he can guide them to the Phantom Zone on a frequency. It might kill him, he says, but he can manage it one last time with the help of a mother box. Orion shows up and supplies the mother box and a planet under a red sun where they can more safely open a tube to the zone. Then Phantom Girl gets a message from her teammates who claim to have escaped. Spoiler alert, it is the Martian Ma'alafalak. What is his name? Ma'alafalak. Ma'alafalak. Yeah, okay. I said it wrong the first time. Uh, who is uh, basically trying to see what their plan is and get in on it. So on Trombus, which is the Red Sun planet, they arrive, connecting Danny to the mother box. It does hurt him brutally, but he makes it work. And they may open a portal to the Phantom Zone. When Connor feels Megan's mind, he can't let go. Or he can't go, I guess, even though Zod and the others are about to leave. At that moment, Ma'alafa'ak attacks Danny, making his box attack everybody who is there, not on his team. When they walk through the gate, Connor collapses, walking through the gate from the Phantom Zone. Connor collapses because his wounds are unable to heal, and the episode ends with Laura greeting his parents and saying that he gifts them the galaxy. In our discussion of Strange New Worlds this week, it's going to be a bit about the episode, but not a whole lot because I want to talk about the characters thus far in the show, as well as a couple of articles that I found uh, with some perspectives on the show. Um, this episode was episode 4, premiered on the 26th on Paramount+, Plus, titled Memento Mori. The plot of the episode is... While on a routine supply mission to a colony planet, the USS Enterprise comes under attack from an unknown malevolent force. Pike learns that the enemy cannot be dealt with by conventional Starfleet means. This episode gives you some really great shots of the ship, some fantastic drama, and does a really wonderful job of showcasing how everybody is so perfect for their job, they really are the best of Starfleet. 
I told you it was going to be short about the actual episode. Um, but from space.com um, on this particular episode, and actually the show so far, they say, The USS Enterprise has never looked better, and the pseudo-retro style of the J.J. Abrams 2009 movie has been seamlessly blended with both the vintage style of the original series and the new interpretation of that vintage style. Oh, and did you see the those away mission jackets this week? Mmm. <laughs> I understand what they're feeling. It's 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 a really great visual appearance that they've settled on for this show. They've nailed it on the head. Uh, Screen Rant pointed out that this episode is similar to a, a episode from the original series, specifically season one, episode fourteen, called "Balance of Terror." If you would like to see more about those similarities, I have that article linked in the description. As for my thoughts on the characters so far, um, I'm going to go through the list of the main cast, starting with Katet Neota Uhura, played by Celia Rose Gooding. She is the linguistics, linguistics, like linguisa, linguistics specialist Pike calls a prodigy. Um, she is just a cadet at this point. Uh, we obviously know her as Nichelle Nichols from the original series, and then, um, you know, Gamora, what's her name, in the... J.J. Abrams stuff. Um, I really, really, her character is great for so many reasons. I really like this uh, portrayal of her. Um, they have done a great job of tying in various aspects of culture and experiences and her own uh, intelligence really, really well. I'm super curious if they are going to give her any romance plot lines. Because depending on what story, what uh, really Star Trek universe you're talking about, um, she has had romances with both Spock and with, um, you know, the F James T. Kirk, who is a future captain of the USS Enterprise. However, we have met James T. Kirk's father on this show, who looks to be not too much older than Uhura herself, um, which could just be my misinterpretation of his appearance. Because he looks like he's maybe 30 max. <laughs> um, and I have a hard time seeing him have a son who is within dating age at any point of Uhura. I feel like he is, if he has a son, his son's in elementary school at the oldest. But we'll see. We'll kind of see. We already know that Kirk is going to be showing up in season two. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see how it all gets brought together. We also have nurse Christine Chapel, played here by Jess Bush, another original series character. She already has a budding crush on Spock, and she is the future chief medical officer. She kind of goes in and out throughout the original series and whatnot, um, but uh, yeah, future chief medical officer, and I really, really like Jess Bush's portrayal of her so far. Lieutenant Lan Nunyan Singh is played by Christina Chong. Uh, there is a quote from Ghosts of Illyria not quote from Ghosts of Illyria, but about the episode Ghosts of Illyria, where we learn a lot about her background. It says Laan and her family were descendants of Khan Nunyan Singh, who you, he is the infamous Khan, the augment tyrant who once ruled a quarter of Earth's population during the eugenics wars. She made herself something of an expert on Khan when she was a child, but also suffered bullying from other children due to her name being called augment and monster, among other things. She is a very intriguing character so far. Number one in this series, the second in command, is Una Chin Riley, played by Rebecca Romine. Romine? Romine. She is an Illyrian, we learned in The Ghost of Illyria. 
and during her assignment aboard the King Jr., she was involved in the rescue of then-childhood Laan Nguyen Singh, so they have a lot of ties together with their history. Lieutenant Erica Ortegas is played by Melissa Navia. She is an original character for this, well, yeah, more or less for this show. She is in Navigation. Ortegas was named for the navigator Jose Ortegas, one of the original characters named in the original Star Trek is, which was the pitch for the show originally by Gene Roddenberry, the first version. We have Commander Hemmer, played by Bruce Horak. He is the chief engineer. He is a blind Anar, apparently, who compensates by having other, much more attuned senses, including a very basic form of telepathy, which is like a sixth sense. He is from a pacifist species. He says, I will not fight for Starfleet, but I will defend its ideals. Three other characters I have much less to say on so far are Dr. Umbenga, the chief medical officer, Mr. Spark, Spark, Mr. Spock, science officer, and Christopher Pike, captain. Dr. Mbenga is played by Babs Olasan Mokun. Uh, Spock is played by Ethan Peck. He's growing on me. I did not like him in the first episode, but he is slowly growing on me. And Christopher Pike is played by Anson Mount. Speaking of Christopher Pike, I did find an article that kind of had me chuckle just a bit, but I do see 100% what she's saying. Uh, the article is uh, Anson Mount on Captain Pike's masculinity in Star Trek and how it is uh, like the ultimate goal for modern masculinity and stuff. It's a really cute article. If you're a big fan of the character or of the actor, you will definitely get a kick out of it. Finally, um... I had a little Easter egg I found from episode one that I found to be a bit interesting that I just wanted to mention. Uh, this is from Looper, and they had a long list of Easter eggs from the series so far that I will link in the description. Uh, this one is, the first episode of Strange New Worlds is appropriately centered on a first contact mission to a world we've never seen before, Kylie 279. In the best Star Trek tradition, the story revolved around a classic dilemma of whether or not to get involved in the affairs of a more primitive culture and society that has not yet achieved interstellar travel, potentially violating the Prime Directive. Though discussed heavily in the episode, some fans may find it curious that Pike and his crew refer to the Directive, however, as General Order 1. That's because in the original Star Trek, it is just called that until about midway through the series when the writers reshape the lexicon. I thought that was a really fun world-building fact about Star Trek that you might want to hear. If you'd like other fun facts and Easter eggs about the show, again, it is linked in the description, and make sure to check out the after show on the Patreon page for the discussion about the uh, Trouble with Tribbles David Gerald book on the creation of an episode from start to finish. The last thing we're going to cover on this week, today's episode is the DC Comic Books August 2022 solicitations, things that are coming out from DC Comics in, you guessed it, August 2022. I've broken this down into a couple of different sections to try and make it a little bit easier to follow, starting with uh, what we're calling Anna's highlights, things that I found most interesting. And then we have New This Month, obviously self-explanatory, Batman Miscellaneous, covering all Batman content. Dark Crisis, covering obviously anything that ties into Dark Crisis, and then General Continuing. 
Um, we're going to start up there with my personal suggestions and whatnot, uh, beginning with Poison Ivy number three. This will be written by G. Willow Wilson with art by Marcio Takara, covers by Jessica Fong, Joshua Middleton, Art Germ, Justine Franny, and Seb McKinnon. Oh, shoot, and Joelle Jones. I, I mean, honestly, most of these variants are just sexy. Like, oh my gosh, I want them all. It says, fixing the world isn't easy work, and Ivy's all hot and sweaty because of it. Getting her hands dirty was never an issue, but when plant assassins come after her, Ivy must be willing to play dirty as well. Featuring variants from some of the comics most of blah, 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 blah. Yeah, featuring variants. We already talked about that. Not much of a solicit, but I'm just happy the series is still going, and they haven't given us a final issue number yet. Deceased, War of the Undead Gods, number one of eight. This will be part three, I believe. Third and final installment. Yes, third and final installment of Tom Taylor's Deceased. This is, of course, by Tom Taylor with art in this one by Trevor Harsine and Andy Lanning. We're going to have covers by... Trevor Harrison, Dan Moore, Kayla New, Francesco Matina, Sun Kamunaki, Dan Moore again, and Francesco Matina. What began as a battle for Earth has become a war for the galaxy as the epic final chapter in the massive Deceased franchise is here. The emergence of a reborn undead dark side in Deceased Dead Planet sets the stage for the most devastating conflict yet for Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. As the anti-life equation spreads through the cosmos, the survivors of Earth prepare for the coming apocalypse and realize that their only hope could lie in the most powerful surviving hero from the first Deceased series. Wonder Girl 2022 Annual, becoming an August by Joelle Jones, with art by Adriana Mello, Sweeney Boo, Jill Thompson, and Emmy Lennox. One thing I have to always appreciate about Joelle Jones is her ability to always nab stellar female creators to do her work with her. Covers by Joelle Jones, and then I should put my foot in my mouth with Chris Wild Goose and W. Scott Forbes. It is a 48-page one-shot special. After an unforgivable first visit to Themyscira, Sea Trial of the Amazons, Yara Flor has been crowned Wonder Girl and her Escasida tribe accepted into the Amazon Sisterhood. So what now? The jungles of Brazil beckon our, her our heroes home, just in time for some new adventures. You won't want to miss the oversized issue packed with never-before-seen stories about the mysterious new tribe and their most famous member. The new champion of Shazam number one comes from the illustrious Josie Campbell with art by the also illustrious Evan Doc Shainer. Uh, we're going to have covers by the, on this first issue by Joshua Milton and Gary Frank. It will be a four issue series. Mary Bromfield has always struggled to determine who she is outside her family. Kind of hard to do when you're all superheroes. Now, after Billy Batson's heroic sacrifice, the power of Shazam has vanished, and she's been left powerless. Most heroes would be distraught, but not Mary. It's, time, it's finally time for a voyage of self-discovery as she prepares for her freshman year of college and civilian life. But nothing is ever truly normal for this young hero because she's been just chosen as the new champion of Shazam, at least according to a talking rabbit sent to her by her estranged brother, Billy. Will she embrace the power, or will it die along with this world's hope for survival against the mysterious magical forces waiting to take control? Find out in Mary's first solo miniseries, brought to you by up-and-coming comics writer Josie Campbell and fan-favorite Shazam artist Doc Shainer. 
Catwoman Lonely City issue 4 of 4 comes out and completes the series in August by Cliff Chang, Cliff Chang, and Cliff Chang with a cover by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. One of the most acclaimed Black Label series ever reaches its conclusion. All of the sacrifice, all of the broken bodies and shattered relationships was leading up to this. Selena Kyle standing in front of the Batcave, desperate to know the secrets inside of it. Secrets once thought to have died with Batman. But you should never open doors you can't close if opening them means swinging wide the gates of hell. That sounds so fun! Finally, in my own picks or whatever we're calling this, Nubia, Queen of the Amazons, number three of four, is by Stephanie Williams with art by Aletha Martinez and Mark Morales. Covers by Kari Rondoff, Juliet Neca, and Derek Chu. With Nubia on the men, she'll need all the help she can get to battle the powerful villain behind it all, Zilla. Enter Hawk. I'm just going to say Hawk Woman because I refuse to say the other name, and the new Wonder Girl, Yara Floor. But there is something more to this vendetta against Nubia and her efforts to bring peace to man's world. Could Zilla be connected to our queen's life before she became an Amazon? Obviously the answer is going to be yes. Find out in the penultimate issue of this fan favorite miniseries. Coming new in August, DC Saved by the Bell Rev number one, written by Art Baltazar Franco, who is, I guess, a one-name person, Andrew Aiden, Dan Waters, Becky Cloonan, Brendan Fletcher, Tim Seeley, Brandon J. Thomas, Peter, oh, Brandon Thomas, Peter J. Tomasi, and Dave Wilgos, with art by Art Balthazar, Nelson Daniel, Juan Feria, Carl Keschel, Mike Norton, Scott Collins, and Craig Kermack or Cermak. Covers by Juni Ba and Riley Rusmo. It says school's back in session and we know just what you're waiting. You know you're waiting for the bell to give you some relief. Alright, you can't say we didn't try. DC self by the bear DC Saved by the Bell Reeves halls are packed with eight tales of school time fun around the DC universe. The Suicide Squad is sent to an international prep school to protect a dignitary son. Jean-Paul Vallée returns to school that made him Asriel. Plus, a return to Tiny Titans by Art Balthazar and Franco, and a new school year starts at Gotham Academy. Tales of the- ow. My back just almost killed me. Tales of the Human Target number one by Tom King will have art by a bunch of dudes. Uh, it's a one, forty-eight-page one-shot about Tom King's story. Um, I was really enthusiastic until I saw there were zero females involved, and uh, we're gonna move on. Swords of Azrael number one is by Dan Waters. I mean, when he has a chance to pick out whoever he wants to go on the project, and he just continually chooses just to do, for the most part, white dudes. I just, I just. <laughs> Sword of Azrael number one is by Dan Waters, with the covers by. Or art and cover by Nicola. Ooh, that's something with a lot of marks over the letters. Sismia Caesar. Oof, I'm so sorry. Uh, this one is one of six. It says the warrior angel of Saint of Saint Dumas returns. Jean-Paul Vallée does not want to be Azrael ever again. All it has brought him is pain, violence, and misery. He has sequestered himself away at a monastery in Europe to find peace. But when a young woman who claims to have the same system programming that made Jean-Paul into Azrael arrives at the monastery, he won't have a choice but to don his violent mantle of Azrael once more to protect her from deadly assassins who wish her harm. We also have from Dan Waters and the same artist, 
um, Sword of Azrael, Dark Knight of the Soul, which is a one shot uh, that goes along with this. It says the angel of Sandumoff's faith is challenged. This issue collects the critical. Oh, okay, so it's just the Batman Urban and Legend stuff that he did. Okay, so it's like a preface to the Sword of Azrael that was in the Urban Legend series. Gotcha. Olympus Rebirth number one comes from Becky Cloonan and Michael Conrad with art by Caitlin Yarsky, who I adore. Covers by Julian Totino Tedesco, Tula Latoy, and Lee Weeks, who are all fantastic. This is a 48-page one-shot. After years of bitter and violent conflict, the Greek pantheon of gods stands united to welcome their latest goddess, Hippolyta of Themyscira. Due to her heroic efforts in the mortal realm, the former queen has earned her rightful place among the gods and plans to use her newfound powers to take care of her Amazon sisters from beyond. Little does she know, some of the gods are wary of the new future Hippolyta brings and will do just about anything to stop it. Batman One Bad Day, The Riddler is a one-shot by Tom King and Mitch Gerrids with covers by Jim Lee, David Marquez, Mikael Janin, and Brian Boland. It will be 64 pages. The Dark Knight's greatest villains... I don't feel like reading this, so I'm going to be honest. Basically, they're giving all these creators villains. You're going to get The Riddler, Toothpaste, Penguin, Mr. Freeze, Catwoman, Bay, Clayne Fist, and Ra's al Ghul. These, you know, various iconic writers and artists are going to do one-shots on them to give them these fun new dark stories. Tom King and Mitch Gerrids are doing the Riddler. I feel like that's enough information. <laughs> Batman Dear Detective number one is a uh, one-shot by Lee Bermejo with art by Lee Bermejo, a one of 25 cover by Lee Bermejo, a one of 50 cover by Lee Bermejo. Uh, what happens when a comics art powerhouse meets one of the greatest, most exciting heroes of all time? One part prestige art book, one part compelling noir tale, this one-of-a-kind edition collects some of Liebermejo's most jaw-dropping Batman covers, woven together to tell a story that strikes right at the heart of the Dark Knight's never-ending crusade. Harley Quinn the Animated Series, The Real Sidekicks of New Gotham Special, number one, is an 80-page prestige one-shot, written by T. Franklin, Alexis Casarano, Connor Shin, Jimmy Mosqueda, and Jemison Borak with art by Max Saren, O'Neill Jones, Erica Henderson, Logan Fairber, PJ Holden, and more. What happens when the writers from the Harley Quinn from Harley Quinn the TV show and Harley Quinn the animated series tour the comic book tour the comic book get together to swap stories from New Gotham absolute mayhem that's what follow for what hap for what happened to some of your favorite sidekicks on Tawny Young's new trash-tastic daytime talk show and watch chairs fly as they spill the tea guest starring Clayface Batgirl Frank the Plant and Harley Quinn's worst sidekick the Joker now the rest of these I'm going to be a lot more particular in how much information I give because uh, my voice is starting to hurt uh, so the next section is Batman Miscellaneous because DC Comics would not survive without a month of Batman comics. They would literally go bankrupt. Batman White Knight Presents Red Hood 2 of 2 is written by Sean Gordon Murphy and Clay McCormack with art by Simone DeMeo, covered by Sean Murphy, Jim Chung, and Simone DeMeo. After being reluctantly recruited to bring justice to the East Backport neighborhood in Gotham, Jason Todd is back in the hero business. With an all-too-eager sidekick gone by his side, he's on the road to becoming one of the good guys again, and after all the damage Bruce Wayne did to his childhood, he's hell-bent on creating the ultimate Robin, no matter the cost. But 
but when the new dynamic duo's first challenger comes calling, will they be able to be up to the da- will they be up to the task? Shrieker's ready to turn up the stereo and blow our heroes away. Batman 126 is by Chip Sarsky and Jorge Jimenez, uh, with a backup story by, I guess, Chip and artist Belin Ortega. Um, Honestly, I have this here because I'm interested in the backup, where Catwoman is piecing together the lineage of one of Gotham's most notorious crime families, and it's not for the faint of heart, is what it says. Detective Comics 1026 by Ram V and Raphael Albuquerque. Um, with, oh wow, we got a lot of covers by uh, Evan Cagle, Simone Spurrier, or Simon Spurrier, Donnie, Jim Lee, Scott Williams, Alex Sinclair, Yoshitaka Amano. Um, yeah, that's pretty intense. And then Batman Urban Legends number 18 is starting a new string of sagas by Teeny Howard, Blake Howard, Brandon Thomas, Chris Burnham, Henry Baraha, and Greg Hahn, with art by Rosie Kempe, Alberto Jimenez, Albuquerque, Chris Burnham, and Sergio Asuna. Um, Teeny Howard and Blake Howard pen an epic Batman story. Batman and the Outsiders have to save Signal from burning out. And a new mystery begins starring Pennyworth before his passing. Batgirls number nine is by Becky Cloonan and Michael Conrad with art by Jonathan Chase. Oh, Case. Batman Beyond Neo Year number five by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing has art by Max Dunbar. Batman Superman World's Finest number six by Mark Wade has art by Travis Moore. Batman Fortress four of eight is by Gary Witta and Derek Robertson. Batman Killing Time. I told you there's a lot of Batman. Batman Killing Time 6 of 6 is by Tom King and David Marquez. Batman The Night 8 of 10 is by Chip Zartsky and Carmine Dijan Domenico. And I Am Batman number 12 is by John Ridley and Christian Duce. Who? <laughs> In Dark Crisis, we have Dark Crisis number 3 of 7 will be coming out by Joshua Williamson and Daniel Sampere. Uh, it's going to be the Battle of the Emerald Army. And then we have Dark Crisis, Worlds Without a Justice League. Green Lantern is a one-shot by Philip Kennedy Johnson with art by Fernando Blanco. There's also a backup story by Nadia Shamos with art by Jack Herbert. And that one seems to be pretty much just Jon Stewart, Kyle Rayner, and Hawkwoman. I refuse to say the other name. Dark Crisis Young Justice 3 of 6 will be by Megan Fitzmartin and Laura Braga, who is absolutely fantastic. This will be following, of course, Superboy, Impulse, Tim Drake, uh, and others. Finally, tying into Dark Crisis is The Flash 785 by Jeremy Adams and Amake Nahulapan. I'm so sorry. Um, And this is The Search for Barry Allen. Um... Yeah, that that's it for that. Moving on to the general continuing for DC Comics in August of this year, Catwoman 46 by Teeny Howard will have art by Sami Basri, Basri, uh, with covers by Jeff Decal, Sosa Mica, apparently not, um, Je- uh, Jenny Frizen, which is interesting. We'll see. Harley Quinn 18 through 21, remember she's weekly now, are all coming out in August, and I feel so sorry for the art team, or rather for all of them. I believe they all have different artists, but they are all written by Stephanie Phillips, and this is Harley Quinn taking Task Force, Task Force, Task Force XX into space. Whew. 
We also have Harley Quinn 2022 Annual coming out, uh, which is again by Stephanie Phillips with multiple artists. Um, and they are doing more Task Force XX stuff. Task Force XX Space Extravaganza stuff. Um, I guess it will be the final installment of that run, of that arc. We'll see. The Flash 2022 Annual Number 1 is focusing on Wally West and Linda Park. It'll be by Jeremy, da- Jeremy Adams and Sergio Asuna, covered by Marguerite Savage. Flashpoint Beyond Number 4 is by Jeff Johns, Jeremy Adams, and Tim Sheridan, with art by Zermanico. Action Comics 1046 by Philip Kennedy Johnson and Dale Eaglesham. Black Adam number three by Christopher Priest and Rafa Sandoval. DC vs. Vampires 8 of 12 by Matthew Rosenberg and Otto Schmidt. DC vs. Vampires All at War number two of six by Matthew Rosenberg and Alex Pacnadel by and art by Pascal Qualano. DC Mech number two by Kenny Porter and Baldemar Rivas. Deathstroke Incorporated number 12 by Ed Brisson and Dexter Soy. Duo number 4 by Greg Pak and Koi Pham and Scott Hanna. Multiversity Teen Justice 3 of 6 by Yvonne Cohen and Danny Lore with art by Mar- Marco Faia. Naomi Season 2 6 of 6 by Brian Michael Bendis and David F. Walker with art by Jamal Campbell. Robin 17 by Joshua Williamson with art and cover by Roger Cruz and Norm Rapmund. Superman Son of Kal-El number 14 by Tom Taylor and Cian Tormi. The Justice League for oh sorry Jurassic, Jurassic League 4 of 6 by Daniel Warren Johnson and Juan Gideon with art by Juan Gideon. Swamp Thing 16 by Rom V and Mike Perkins and finally Wonder Woman 790 by Becky Cloonan, Michael Conrad, and Jordi Belair with art by Emma Lupacino and Paulina Gonachow, which I probably said wrong. Ending on a good note there. Alrighty, we have managed to do it. Oh, cracking my neck. Under two hours. Uh, next week, first of all, keep your ears open. I know I keep saying this, but it really is coming out this week. Justice for Madeline Pryor, the May Yancey Street special. I'm planning on having it out tomorrow. Fingers crossed that I still feel uh, physically as well as I have today, and I can still uh, keep this positive health upswing going. Um, I will be talking on next week's episode, which will be coming out on the 6th of June. Comic book picks and comic book polls, assuming that I actually get some reading done this week. Obi-Wan episode 3, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Ms. Marvel prep, because remember, the show will be starting that Wednesday. Also, Star Trek Strange New Worlds episode 5. Young Justice episode 25 of 26. And any news that happens between now and then, we will also be discussing on Monday's episode. Thank you for tuning in for whatever portion that you did or were able to for this this week's episode. Um, Give whatever comments or feedback you would like. I'd love to hear from you. Connect online, all of that good stuff. Um, We're getting close to, we're less than a month away from the official change to summer. So stay hydrated, you, you big nerds. Um, and remain sweaty about your favorite hobbies.